Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 18. I encourage you to be back with us for the evening service at 6. And do believe, please be praying for our missionary guests who are coming down for the evening service. And I say coming down there in northern Indiana. And that may not be quite as easy a trek as it is for you to come out of the county to the church. So pray, pray for those folks as they come down from northern Indiana to the meeting tonight. And uh, pray for the Mark and Christy Wimpy. Uh, missionaries to Zambia and brother Van Ness is here today and remind me to remind you to pray for them but also pray for pastors you know uh, uh, I'm, I'm um, I get irritated I get angry at times at pastors for the uh, sloppy sorry job that they do uh, in dealing with our missionaries and uh, I'm, I'm irritated with the pastor that um, Brother Van Ness had dealt with this day. They had a meeting today, and the guy canceled it but never told him. Uh, that's not fine and friendly. I don't know what is. Uh, that's, just, that's just irresponsible, and I don't appreciate that. Uh, I don't appreciate pastors behaving in such uh, irresponsible, unchristlike manner. If you're going to cancel a meeting, call them a sharing, cancel it straight up. You know, I, you can't come, and here's why. But if you've let the man believe he's coming all the way up until four days before, uh, that's irresponsible, and I, I deplore that. I deplore that. That, that uh, maybe that pastor would turn in his spurs and change his job. Uh, it just it irritates me. It irritates me deeply, and uh, and I think we ought to expect better from pastors who schedule meetings. And if you are not responsible enough to schedule them and keep them, don't schedule them in the first place. But uh, you pray for Brother Van Ness that the pastors with whom he has to deal will be right and uh, honorable in these matters. It's hard enough to be on the road all the time to try to raise reputation. That's enough. But then to have to deal with pastors who are irresponsible, that's a whole never story. So anyway, that's another sermon for another morning, but this is not the one I'm preaching. Romans chapter 8, look if you would at verse 15. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, Paul writes, For we have not, ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Last week, we established pretty much from the scriptures in our message that uh, there are on this earth uh, actually two family categories. That is, uh, there are only two families. You're either in the family of God or you're in the family of Satan. The Bible is very clear on that. So everybody in this room this morning is either in God's family and you're children of God or you're in the devil's family and you're the children of the devil. Everybody in this room, no exceptions, no exclusions, and no excuses to claim ground in the middle because there is none. But uh, a passage that I didn't read that I should have read, let me call your attention to it. It's in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14 and 15. Paul wrote this. He said, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That's the only time you'll find the word family in the New Testament. The only time. It is not found anywhere else. It's the only time. It's the only place. And it refers to the family of God. And it's interesting that in Paul's statement in verse 15, it's the whole family. Those folks who are already gone to heaven, saved by the grace of God, who trusted Christ as Savior, who died and are already in heaven, and all the rest of us who know Christ, have believed on Christ, but are yet here. So the whole family, those in heaven and those on earth, these are the folks that are in, quote, the family of God. By the way, I remind you, as I remind myself, that, that uh, the Bible says very clearly that our Lord Jesus Christ, in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse number 26, it says of our Lord, For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And what that says to us, and I hope to you and me as individuals who are members of Christ's family, that is that uh, we're commanded, as he was, to be separate from sinners. And I remind you, he was separate from sinners. 
but he won many of them. You know, he shared the gospel with them and so forth. There's a distinction in sharing the gospel with a sinner and making that sinner your Conrad in arms or your faithful friend or your loyal inner circle people. And that's what passages like 2 Corinthians chapter number 6 would prohibit. Listen, in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 16, it says, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of God, a living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, just what Christ was. So he's not asking you to be anything. He wasn't. So just as he was separate from sinners, he said, You need to be separate from sinners, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And notice in verse 18 of that passage what he says he'll be. I will be a father. A father. I'll be a father unto you. The opposite is also true. If you're not going to be separate, I'm not going to be your father. That's pretty straight up. So the ideal is, if you're not separate from sinners, then I'm not your father. If you're connected to sinners, if that's your lifestyle, if that's the way you live, and that's your brotherhood, I'm not. I'm going to be a father to those who are like me, separate from the world, holy, undefiled, those who keep themselves from the world and are, are not blemished and stained by it. But now if you're going to go run with the world, this passage of Scripture sets forth, I'll be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord God. His point is, separation is not an option. Separation is a identifying mark of true believers. That's what he's saying. And don't miss it. That's not an option. People turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and look at that passage of Scripture, and they say, oh, well, you know, that's if you go down the road a little way, you get separated, and you, you're really a super-duper Christian. Oh, no, you're not. <laughs> Oh, no, you're not. If you're not living in 2 Corinthians 6, you're not a Christian at all. That's what he's saying. Because he's saying, if you're really separate, you're my children. If you're not separate, you belong to the devil. That's what he's saying. It's a characteristic of true believers to be like their Lord, and he was separate from sinners, and he expects the same thing out of us. If we are, I'm your father. If you're not, you're not my sons and daughters. So don't go weaken the text and make it to say something it doesn't say. It's a characteristic of true believers. Like so much of what we've run into through the passage in Romans chapter 8, it tells us, it tells us if we're really saved or not by looking at the way we behave, not what we say. Like we talked about so early in John's gospel or epistle, 1 John, if we say, we have no sin. If we say, if we say, if we say. Why do you say all that? Because there's a typical characteristic of religious people to say a lot. But behave so little. Behave so little. It's, 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 it's easy to say something. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven. Why are you going to heaven? Maybe like the illustration Mike gave in Sunday school. I'm going to heaven because my good works are going to outweigh my bad works. Well, around New Life Baptist Church, we, I hope, have gone far and away from that level of perception of decision-making about whether we're saved or lost. But I say to you, my friend, there are people in this auditorium who may still think, well, I've just always believed in Christ. I was, I was reared in church. I've, I've, just been, I've just been believing in Christ all along. You know, that won't cut it either. There has to come a day of birth when you're born into the family of God. John 3, you must be born again. It has to be a demarcation from when you were dead in sin and trespasses, when you were born into the family of God. It has to be a distinct birth not a gradual osmosis from a worm into a fly. I say to you, so many folks in our society have got this idea that they just sort of became a Christian by osmosis. You know, they just, they get into church, they were religious, they believe there's a God, and next thing you know, they just think they're going to heaven. And then they have to start facing the raw reality of what the Bible says when it says, if you're not separate from the world, you're not a child of mine, and I'm not claiming you as being my children, and I'm not your father. But we just sort of osmosis process, we grew into believing that. But that's not. That's a characteristic of believers. It does not say it's an option for believers to practice. By the way, I was reading in devotions this week a, a, an interesting passage. It's an Old Testament one, and you don't have to turn to it. But it was about Judah under the leadership of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the king of Judah, and uh, for a long time the Assyrians were fighting Judah. 
and the Babylonians were hating the Assyrians. And so what happened, the king of Babylon sent a, a, a non-prod, if you would, to go over to see Hezekiah. And his idea was to go over to see if he could not persuade Hezekiah and uh, Judah to come over and help Babylon fight against the Assyrian armies because they were fearful that they were going to be overwhelming of them. And so they wanted more help. And they thought, well, let's just go over and get the, these folks at Judah to help. And so they go over and they visit Hezekiah. And um, the prophet had already warned them, be careful about these pagans, you know. <coughs> Excuse me. Be careful about these pagans. When they come in around you, they may say one thing, but really they got an agenda elsewhere. So beware of that. Well, Hezekiah was sick for a while, and he, he got a letter from the king of Babylon and said, I'm going to send my, my entourage over to your way, and they have a gift for you. Oh, he said, yeah, bring them on. And so they came, and he welcomed them into his house. And uh, the Bible says they, he showed them everything. He took them into his house, showed them everything. And obviously, the house being the palace, everything about, showed them everything. And it was interesting. The prophet says to him, he said, uh, after they left, he said, this question, what have they seen in thy house? What have they seen in thy house? May I tell you that what they saw in that house, they recognized that one, it was the riches. In fact, the text of Scripture talks about all the riches that were in Hezekiah's house. It makes no allusion anywhere to anything that indicated Hezekiah feared the God of heaven. And what does the Babylonians do? But they get a better plan. Let's don't get these of Judah to come over and help us fight. Let's go over and take all the things we saw in the house of the palace and, and just, just take all it as a spoil from them. Let's go fight them. And if you know your history, of course, that's exactly what they did. And they ravaged that palace. And they did it because what they saw in it. There was nothing in that house that indicated to them that these people had a fear of God and a respect for God and that God would somehow uh, show a dependency. If only it showed them dependent upon the world and the things of the world and all that they'd accumulated. And all was Hezekiah happy to show it all. Look at all of what I've accumulated. I ask you a question this morning. If you say you're a child of God, then what have they seen in your house? If the world comes to your door and walks into your house, what evidences would they see in your house that you're God-fearing, a child of the king? What if they went to your video rack? Are they just going to see a list of R-rated videos just like they have in their house? What do they come to your magazine rack? Are they going to see the same kind of magazines in the racks at your house that they see in their house? What if they sit with you while you watch television? Are you going to laugh at the same sin that they laugh at? Are, are you going to sit there and laugh and guff off about all the wickedness that spews out of that place like drinking from a spring fountain in the mountains of Tennessee? What is it that, that's going to differentiate you between them and God's people? What do they see in your house? Because I'll tell you something. If you have children in your home or you have young people who pass through it, they see what's in your house. They get an idea. And they perceive what you really are by what you really are there, not what you are here. I know full well you're your best here. I know that. I wasn't born before dawn this morning. I know exactly the fact that we all put our best foot forward when we come into God's house, or at least try. But I know what you are when you are alone is what you really are. And what your heart desires, that's what you really are. And if you had your rathers, in some cases it might be that your rathers would not be here this morning. You might rather be somewhere else. And every chance you get, you're going to take that advantage. Last Sunday evening, I'm confident there are many people who stayed home and watched the ball games. That's where their hearts were. You think a heart that desires that over a relationship with the Lord and worship is honoring to the Lord? Do you think that's even the evidence or characteristic of the children of God? You'll forgive me, but this pastor says absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's absurd to think so. Birds of a feather flock together. And the scriptures are crystal clear that God's people have a bond and a unity that's formed because of the relationship to him. And I don't care what the world puts up as a temptation to them. They know where they ought to be and they'll be there. And you can put up all the excuses in the world why you wouldn't. But you'll have to admit somewhere along the way they're going to fall beneath that load of, of evidence to the point they're going to be useless excuses. Because what we are, we are really betraying to the world what our hearts really say.
This passage of Scripture that's before us here is one of those who give a test to our relationship with the Lord. It's a checkpoint, as I've said before. It says it over and again. It does it repeatedly. But also, I remind you from last week, that passage in John 8, 44, where you are of your father, the devil. So there's only a group of folks who belong to the family of God who trusted Christ as Savior. They're on their way to heaven, and they desire spiritual things. They're in God's Word, and they're in prayer. They're in church. And they have a desire to be there. They're not there because they, you know, somehow they have this image to, um, to hold up in the community. They're there because their heart draws them there. And they don't look for excuses not to go. They look for excuses to come. That's a real child of God. Because that's exactly how a family operates. When I sit down and my mother called from the back steps of our house to come to the supper table, I guarantee you nobody had to fight me to get there. One, because I belong there. That was my family. And two, when I got there, I know that the conversation around that table was going to be for me. It was going to be helpful for me to hear. And I may never get to speak a word, but if my mother and my father were communicating. I knew what was said would be good for me. And I also knew that there would be a provision made for me because I belonged to that family. That's exactly the way it is about a church. Every time it comes to 9.30 on Sunday morning, there ought to be, as it were, a mother calling from the front steps of the church to saying, all of you who are family members, come in and sit down because it's time to eat. And if somehow your heart draws you in another direction, then you better check your relationship. Because that's the most intense personal verification of a relationship that you can have. And for those people who don't belong to the Lord, they can't say, Our Father. They don't have God as their father. They have Satan as their father. And uh, the will of the devil they'll do because he was a liar from the beginning. And, and he encourages lying and deceit among those who follow him. But I say... Satan himself desires and wants very much to keep you blinded to this. Here's a passage that is important. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 3 says, If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. That's people who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I say lost, and I say blind, and say hid from this point. Listen carefully. There are people who profess to know Christ as Savior, who are not born-again believers, because they have made a false profession. They've made a decision that had absolutely nothing to do with a conviction of sin. And this week, without any doubt, in a conversation I had, I am confident I ran into that very issue. And in the context of that, this person is hidden from the ideal of really going to heaven. He thinks he is. And he said in the services of the New Life Baptist Church before, and he will tell you, I am absolutely going to heaven. But with a conversation and you dig into his life and the decision he made, there's evidence of none, zero, zero of conviction of sin and being a sinner. And yet he's as blind as a bat to the fact, here's a man who sit under all this teaching, all this preaching, and is going to die one day. And when he does, he's going to wake up in hell following his father, the devil. Now, you'll forgive me, but that's one of the saddest things any pastor has to deal with. Is to be so close to the truth, you can touch it, you can hear it, and you can even smell it. But not partake of it. The thinking, I'm okay, everything's alright, everything's fine. Because he refuses to look at his own life and the evidence, the fruit of his own behavior. Because the fruit of his own behavior betrays his words. Betrays his words. So it doesn't matter what you say. It's what your heart pushes you to do and what you do and so if it is a matter that when we have church your heart draws you somewhere else in some other direction it ought to tell you the same thing I have no relationship with God my heart's not in that my heart's with the things of this world the joys that they can give the fun they provide the entertainment they set up that's where my heart is then just be man or woman enough to say it I'm not a Christian I made a profession but it really wasn't real because my heart's not in that. My heart's out there and doing those things. And I love this world and I don't want to leave this place. This is where I belong. Then you don't belong in God's house. You wouldn't be happy there. You wouldn't be happy there. And yet what we've done in Bible-believing Baptist churches, we've almost made lost people feel good on Sunday mornings when they sit in our pews. God help this pastor and never let you get comfortable if you've not been saved truly by the grace of God that you ought to be as unhappy as any unhappy camper could be in this place. God help me not to help you to be comfortable if you're not right with God. And I say this passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 8 sets that up. By the way, the devil knows full well everybody's religious. 
Oh, yeah, everybody's got religion. Don't miss that. You got it. I got it. We all had it. Even before you came down an aisle, if you professed faith in Christ, you had a religion. And the devil made dead sure that he'll feed that and encourage that. There's the passage in Acts chapter 17. You don't have to turn to it. But when it was that Paul the Apostle made his march around Mars Hill, he came up on all these idols and all these altars, and he said, you know, I perceive that you're too superstitious. Our word, Greek word can be translated, you're too religious. You, you've got all these idols and all these altars here, and, and I perceive you're, you're too superstitious. I mean, you've got all these multitudes of them. And he said, I want to talk to you about the one idol that you've got over here, the altar to the unknown God. That's the way it is in some Sunday morning churches and Baptist fellowships. We come in worshiping everything in the world but the real one, the true one. Well, we may put a name on him and we may call him God, but when you really break him down to who it is and what it is you're worshiping, it's not God at all. It's not God at all. I said it to the Sunday school preliminary folks. We don't come to church because we have friends here. There have been times as I've stood in this pulpit to preach a Sunday morning service that I wish with all my soul that none of you knew each other. Because you see, sometimes friendship gets in the way of real worship. There was a survey done two months ago and a Christian magazine put it out and it, it, it just speaks volumes. There were 50 questions. Out of the top 10 questions, not a single reason for the people coming to church on Sunday morning, not a single one of them mentioned worshiping God. Not a single one of them. Out of the first 10 of the 50 questions, every single one of them had to do with friendship, coziness, security, just a moral commitment to going to church so Monday when I face the world I can say I went to church on Sunday out of the first ten questions not a single answer came in I came to worship God Almighty not a one not a one I don't have to tell you what I think is the reality of those people who answered that question I don't think they know Christ I don't think they understand who God is. And I think we have been soothing, band-aiding, putting ointment on their feelings so long that we're afraid we'll offend them. And so we don't want to tell them any differently. Let me tell you, this is one pastor doesn't mind to offend them if we can wake them up and keep them from dying deceptively and going to a devil's hell. I don't care if they get offended at me. Offense is a big is a big word, but a small price to pay to keep somebody out of a devil's hell because the devil keeps deceiving him into believing he's saved and happy and everything's hunky-dory when in reality it's not. And that's where we've come to. I say to you that the fact of the matter is that um, Satan can care less whether you worship something. It could be tree or rock for all he cares. He doesn't matter. He does not care that you worship as long as you don't worship the true God of heaven. That's what he doesn't want you to do. And I remind you that worship as we know it, faith and truth are the means whereby we worship God. Not idols, not altars, what Paul saw on Mars Hill. We don't worship that cross. We don't worship the crown of thorns that hang from it. We don't worship this building. We worship the living God of heaven. And unless we get a hold on that and focus our attention, spiritually speaking, back to that, then I say to you, we are in a big heap of trouble. And you know why we don't so much focus on that? I fear is because we simply are not certain of who it is we worship. Who is this we worship? Well, I remind you of something. It's a sad thing that people worship idols, and this world is literally full of people who bowing and are bowing this morning down to idols and bowing down to human beings, and Satan will be right there to encourage them. He'll do anything using anybody to keep people in darkness regarding the Lord Jesus Christ, whom to know is eternal life. Here's a passage, and before I dig into the text of Romans 8, let me get to it. It's in, it's in 1 Thessalonians 2. And uh, the verse is, chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, in verse 16, he said, Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always. For the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost, verse 17. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire, verse 18. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. Two points. One, 
fact is that he was being forbidden to speak to the Gentiles with the ideal that they might be saved. And who was it that tried to stop him from that? Satan himself. And so I want you to understand this morning that Satan is alive and well this morning, and he will do everything he can. One, if you sit in this service and you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, he'll do everything he can to stop you from seeing your need of Jesus Christ as personal Savior. That's the first thing. The second thing he'll do, if you sit here this morning and you had a false decision 25, 35, 45, 55 years ago and you've been hanging on to that thing and it's not real, it's not going to do when you're dying, it's not going to work when God calls you out of here and you realize that, the devil's going to whisper in your ear, look, it's as good as anybody else. Just relax, just relax. Don't sweat it, just relax. Everything's hunky-dory, everything's cool. Just believe, if you believe hard enough, Believe hard enough. And he keeps getting you to believe hard enough. Let me tell you something. The power is not in the faith. The power is in the God of heaven. He is the object of faith. Is what saves, not faith. Faith does not save. God saves. Faith is that which is a conduit to accommodate or to bring down that power into my life. By faith, I believe the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross as the sacrifice for my sin. I believe that. How to get it? God gave it to me. It was a gift of faith. And I believe it. And through faith, there comes a circumstance in my life where I know Christ is my Savior, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and His work. There's something here. It's no small thing if you are here this morning and you are really born again, truly, absolutely born again. You ought to understand that it's no small thing that you came to faith in Jesus Christ and he saved you. You see, understand number one is that your own old nature fought against it. Number two, you ought to understand that Satan fights against it. He did everything he could to keep you blind as a bat so you'd never understand you were lost and never understand Christ died for you. But somehow in all the process of that, God in his great mercy reached down and he saved you, if you're saved. And what that says is that's no small matter. And if you're not careful, you'll just take it so much for granted that you'll miss the great blessing of Scripture, of how good God has been to us. Something else to be noted in our passage here in Romans chapter 8, when we come down and did so last week, we realized the phrase of the work of adoption, and we talked about that. It says in verse number 15, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. And that's a good indication of your own relationship with Jesus Christ, that you're not a servant, you're not a slave, and you're not a servant and a slave of sin. You've been born into God's family if you've been born again, been saved. And there should not be any fear in your heart. Should not be any wonder or worry, and it should not be that anybody could get up and talk about salvation and whether you have it or you don't have it and cause you any kind of concern whatsoever. Because if you're anchored to the Lord Jesus Christ in simple salvation, then nothing ought to move you. Nothing. And he says in this case, you are not received the spirit of bondage of fear. But he says you have received the spirit of adoption. I remind you, the word adoption here is not the word adoption in our modern English usage. Adoption in the scriptures does not mean that you go down to a, an orphanage and you see a child that you think would be a blessing in, in your home. And so you pick this child and you go through a process, legal process, to adopt that child into your family. That's not what this is. That's not what this is. If you get that idea, you have misinterpreted the scriptures. Wrongly so. You're not, you're not adopted into God's family that way. You were born into God's family. And there is no conflict between being born again, as John chapter 3 teaches, and Romans chapter 8 teaches about adoption. There is no conflict. There is no miscommunication or a confusion here. None whatsoever. Because being born into God's family is new birth and regeneration. Adoption is giving you a standing or a status of a mature adult so you can receive everything that he has to give. That's the difference. So adoption has more to do with the declaration that you're an adult child in God's family than it does to being picked by God out of an orphanage. So don't get the wrong idea here. Adoption is a declaration of your status as an adult in your relationship to God. He doesn't deal with you as a baby child. He deals with you as his children. Someone who understands, who's an adult enough to understand what he's offering and understand what he demands. 
There are four things about adoption that, that do apply, I think, in context of what Paul is writing here in Romans 8. First off, an adopted person would lose all their rights in their old family. And in the Roman courts, it was a day of declaration. They came to an actual day when a son was declared adopted. He may have been born in a family. He may have been, you know, he may have been working in the fields. He may have been doing all these things. But in the Roman court, he had to come to a day where his father declared he's adopted, meaning today he becomes the status of an adult and will enjoy all the benefits of this family. And it was a declaration made. Then the second thing was an adopted person gained all the rights of the heir in the father's family when he was declared adopted. When this declaration of status was made, he then was written into, as it were, the will. He had all the rights as anybody else in the family to receive whatever the estate would be giving when the estate was settled. There's a third thing. Adopted person's old life, any and all debt, was wiped clean. That means if this child went out and, and had some kind of uh, expenses incurred to that person before they were adopted, literally they were suspended when he came to adoption and the declaration was made in his family. The fourth thing was the adopted person in the eyes of the law was literally and absolutely the son of his new father. There is a case of adoption in Roman history which I think is interesting. I think Barclay has it in one of his Bible study books. And it is a, 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 an illustration of, quote, real adoption, not necessarily just the Roman idea. But this adoption was the one that took place when the Roman emperor Claudius adopted Nero. Many people didn't know, but Nero was adopted. And uh, when Claudius adopted Nero, in order for Nero to have succession to Claudius's throne, that's the whole deal. That's why Claudius did it. He was afraid he might lose some of his control. And if he succeeded to Nero to take the throne, he could give input. And that was the whole idea. And so he adopts Nero so it would take over the throne. Well, Claudius already had a daughter, Octavia. And what happened, Nero got the idea in conversation with Claudius, why don't I marry your daughter and that makes sure that I have a right to the throne. There won't be any legal challenge to it. And Claudius said, I think that's a great idea. And when he proceeded to do so, some legal eagle spoke up and said, you can't do that. You adopted him. That makes Octavio, Octavia and, and Nero brother and sister. You can't marry your sister. Claudius said, no problem, contacted a Roman Senate leader, brought him into his courtroom and said, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write a new law so that my son, Nero, can marry his sister, Octavia, and do it legally. So do whatever you got to do, but do it. And the Roman Senate president went back, passed a law, and the Roman Senate came back and said, here's the law. We passed it. Now Nero, who is a sister, has a sister, Octavia. You can marry her because we will overrule the adoption. But you'll still be adopted. If you thought Romans were always strict, straight, and right, you're wrong. It's confusing as a termite in a yo-yo. You're still adopted, but you can marry your sister. And the Roman law still stands, but we passed a new law so you can marry your sister. And they never, ever realized the contradictions they made. And they left it. And it's on the books we understand in history even to this hour. The fact of the matter is that every believer is adopted. Every single believer is adopted. Every person in this room is adopted. Paul wrote it in, a, in Ephesians. He wrote it this way. Listen carefully. Ephesians chapter 1 and no, verse number 3. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. The scripture is very clear. We are all adopted. Every believer is adopted. We have arrived at a status within the family of God whereby we are declared eligible to receive everything God has for his children. None of us have access to anything with God that the rest of us do not have. That's what this status allows for. Everybody has equal status. And in consequence of that is in an effort of appreciation, I believe. Verse 15 says, But ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. I told you before that Aramaic term, which is a transliteration of the Greek and English, 
her father. He's saying very simply that it's out of the context of us having this relationship of adoption that we cry. We literally come forth with this dear daddy kind of response. It's a, an affectionate kind of term. And he said, it's out of your understanding now that you have this status, this standing before God as an adult in line for all the estate that out of your heart of hearts, you express this affection that you do to your heavenly father. I said it last week and I say it again this week that the more I've studied Romans chapter 8, the more appreciation I have for people who understand that as children of God, you have a heavenly father who will do anything in the world to help you be absolutely right. Now, it doesn't mean, as does with a human father, you won't get everything you ask for. You won't do it. Any good father is going to look at what you ask for and make a determined decision whether it's good or bad for you. If it's bad for you, you're not going to get it. But anything you ask for that's good for you, and this father can afford it, and in our case, the Heavenly Father can afford it because he owns everything, he's going to give it to you. So the fact is, when you ask for something and don't get it, you ought to say, Father, thank you. Thank you, Father. You know better than I know, and thank you for withholding this from me. But that's not usually what we do. We pitch a fit. In conversation with a family this week, not members of our fellowship, but call for some counseling, and in the conversation with this person, I, I brought up a point about uh, the unhappiness of this particular person. And I, and I said, why? why are they so unhappy? And they said, well, because he thinks God did him a dirty deal. I said, he what? He thinks God did him a dirty deal. I said, let me ask you a question. Is this guy saved? Well, I hope so. I think so. And he thinks God did him a dirty deal? I said, one of two things. He's either not saved or he doesn't understand the scriptures. Because if you understand who God is as a child of God, your heavenly father, you'd understand that he'd give you everything you ask for that's good for you because he has access to it. He's rich. But if he doesn't give it to you, then you ought to equally trust him to know it's not good for me. And I ought not have it. And I'll tell you, that's, to me, is a measure of your maturity to be able to look at God when you've asked for something and He won't give it, and for you to look Him, as it were, in the face and say, Thank you, Father. You know better than I know, and I accept this. This is, this is fine, Daddy. You, you know better. And I bow to that. What son would he be to go to his father and his father say, Look, I, I'm not going to give this to you because I know you're going to get this thing. Uh, for instance, no man in this room would give his gun a, a 38 special. My father gave me one years ago, and when my dad died, he left a note, you know, I want Rick to have the 38. Well, I got that 38. I haven't shot the 38. I have a, a 38 and all these shells in my room, and uh, I thought, seriously, hanging signs all over the property, I have a 38, you know. But I don't think that scares anybody off. I think that's a sort of a security sign. But the point is, what if I had a small son, and he came to me and said, Dad, I'd like to have the 38. Would you give me the 38? Uh, and let's say the boy is, uh, is 9, 10 years old. Sure, son, here's, here's 48 shells or bullets, and here's the 38. Just go have a blast of a time. Now, it's not only stupid, it's totally, absolutely unthinkable. Well, may I say to you, that may be unthinkable to you, but there are folks in the South who train their kids from days in diapers how to carry a gun and shoot it. And that kid may know as much about carrying a gun as I'd know how to carry a gun. But the fact of the matter is this, that that father's got to make a judgment about that son at that time. Can he handle this? And that's where it comes in that we have an omniscient heavenly father who knows everything about us, what we can handle, what we can't handle, what we should have, what we shouldn't have, and he gives us a yes or no based on his knowledge of us. That's a heavenly father that you ought to be able to trust and not be upset and angry and bitter when you don't get what you want. You ought to be able to say, Father, I thank you for not giving me that because I know you know best and I resolve my heart to be uh, compliant to it and I just give you the glory for it. And I think that's what prompts you to say, Abba, Father, dearest Daddy, to appreciate that kind of thing. By the way, do you realize this phrase of Abba, Father, listed here, that this is an encouragement for us, I think, to... to um, to understand that, that we not only say that, but if, and I'll not turn to it, but Galatians chapter 4 says that the Holy Spirit within us cries that out. So it's not only what we respond to God with, Abba, Father, dear Daddy, but it says in Galatians 4 that, that uh, the Holy Spirit inside of us prompts us to say that. 
The point made is this. It's good for you to, to, to speak as an affectionate son or daughter to your heavenly father. That's what it's saying. It's saying that it's right for you to get before God privately and for you to share your heart with him and express your affection for him, your love for him. That's what he's saying. That prompts it. When you understand all the ramification of what's involved with you being in a, a position of status so that you get anything God's got, if it's good for you, then you ought to be able to just, boy, flow with appreciation and affection for your Heavenly Father. And yet for some of you, it's very hard for you to show affection to God because you are not shown affection by your Father. Let me tell you something. God is not like any father that's ever been on the face of the earth. I had a good father. My father was kind and gracious, and uh, I love my father as much as I love life itself. And, and I can tell you that he, he has put more in my life than I could ever put into anybody else's. He, he poured himself into me. And my father was, I think, a wise man. I think he was smart. He had a sixth grade education, but he was brilliant to me. And the fact of the matter is that he had common sense. I was often amused and impressed by my father's common sense. Just common sense. And, and, and all the things my dad did for me, but the thing that I, I come to understand, that everybody didn't have a father like that. And if we were to take the images of our father and place them upon God and say, well, I can't, you know, I, this, this doesn't fit because that's not the way my father was. Let me say this to you. Skip your father and go directly to the heavenly father and everything that's recorded in God's word about him, you take in simple childlike faith as his character and I'll still guarantee you that you'll have an easier time bowing and thanking him for all that he does when you really come to know who he is. The better you know him, the more you'll love him. And the more you love him, the more you'll trust him. And the fact of the matter is, there's no excuse for any of us. I don't care how bad of experiences we've had with our fathers to ever think for a second that God will do anything less than what a perfect father would do. He always does right. And he'll always give you what you should have and keep from you being and receiving what you shouldn't have because he's omniscient. He knows everything about you. He knows what it'll lead to. He knows where it'll take you. And he'll either withhold it so it won't ruin you. And don't you ever... Don't you ever crawl up in a corner and say, well, I'm just mad because God's not giving me what I deserve. God, have mercy on your miserable soul. You don't understand the Heavenly Father. He'll give you what you ought to have, and He'll give it to you when you need it, and He'll give it to you in a way that you can use it to His glory and to your good. This word, though, in verse 15 about Abba Father, uh, you should understand, and I hope you realize that in the days of Jesus Christ, the distance between God and the people was shown by the fact that in public you never even spoke the names of God. For instance, to this day, and we were taught this in school very succinctly, that the great name of God himself, Yahweh, uh, Jehovah as it is, was so guarded that to this very day, this moment, we don't know how to to be sure to pronounce the word because it was never made public. You never said Yahweh in public. You never said Jehovah in public. You just didn't do that. It was too holy. It was undefiled. And you didn't go out in a place and just say it. You just didn't do that. God was above that. So nobody knew how you pronounce it. And if you got some guy gets up and says, no, absolutely, this is the way you pronounce it. Uh, first off, you can write him off as being arrogant and cocky and not knowing anything. Because in a Hebrew class, he'll teach you all across the board. You don't know how to pronounce that word because it was never allowed to be made public. Nobody ever got up and said, this is it. What's interesting about that, when Jesus came on the scene, though, and he went to that garden, he himself, in Mark chapter 14, used this phrase, Abba, Father. What he was saying was, you can follow my example now, it's time you can call him Father. No Jew would have ever dreamed of calling God Father. Never dreamed of it. There's not an instance where you look at a Jewish person and think they're going to call God their Father. That was just that was un unquestionably wrong. Never accept that. But when Jesus Christ came on the scene, he became our Savior. God became our Father. And Jesus Christ said, it's okay, call him Father. He said, when you pray, you pray our Father. You see, the fact is the changes come because of our relationship to Jesus Christ. And the one of those, the big one is the one is found in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26 where it says, For ye are the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3, 26. Ye are the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. 
So you can call God Father if in fact by faith you've believed on the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 16 quickly before we leave. In verse 16 of Romans 8, he said, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Here's a, another thing that the Holy Spirit does to give us assurance of salvation or brings us to another checkpoint of our salvation, checking whether we're really saved or not. Verse number 16, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I say this, that um, to understand what Paul is saying, you need to understand what the, the word here in this context is, and the word bear witness, or beareth witness. The Greek word, the, the prefix to it is some, and it means with. The word itself means to give honor or give honorable testimony to, to give a witness for. And what that means is that uh, the Holy Spirit bears joint witness or testimony to our spirit to support our spirit in affirming our salvation. It means that the Holy Spirit works with the human spirit, as it were, to be a, making a statement of assurance of salvation. Let me put it to you this way. When you came to faith in Christ, in the moment, the hour when you did, obviously there had to be a hearing of the Word. Hearing of God's Word. When you hear what the Bible teaches and God's Word says, you hear it. As you hear it, the Holy Spirit then uses it to convict you of your need of Christ. Questioning you, have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior? Is God your Father? And we get convicted by the word we heard. No, I'm not saved. No, Christ is not my Father or God's not my Father. And yes, I need to believe on Jesus Christ as Savior. So the preacher says, okay, here's what you do. Simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Invite Him to come into your heart and be your Savior. Okay, I did that. What happens then is you have obeyed what the Scripture said. The Holy Spirit's prompted and your spirit says to you, I did what I was told according to the scriptures, I must be saved. Well, that's your feelings about it, your statement about it. The Holy Spirit then, as you are born again, comes into your heart, abides and dwells there, and he affirms that. He gives you a sense more than a feeling. He gives you assurances based on the word of God that you are a child of God. And that's what the word is in the Greek here, to bear witness to. It comes with this ideal of a joint testimony to substantiate something as being truth. Here's the illustrations that Paul gives. And by the way, this Greek word is found four times in the New Testament. Three of those four times, Paul writes them in Romans. The first one is back over in Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, listen, in verse 15, Paul wrote, "...which show the work of the law written in their hearts." their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another you see the the phrase in there their conscience also bearing witness the point made is there a great word there that is the same as this one here in romans chapter 8 and, and verse number 16 what it's saying is there is the law of god written on the lost person's heart but there is also conscience bearing witness to that so we have that law that's written, but we have a second witness that comes along and says that's true, but I want to affirm that. I want to stand by that. And it's conscience that does that. So Romans chapter 2 verse 15 says, then look at Romans chapter 9 and verse 1. Romans 9 and verse 1, the other Greek word, this same Greek word is used. Romans 9, 1, Paul says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Paul testifies of this great burden he has for Israel's salvation. But he says, also, my conscience is bearing witness to this. So it's not only a love, a burden, care, concern I have in my heart, but my conscience also bears witness to this same truth. So in each of these cases, the, the, uh, the instances of Romans 2.15 and Romans 9.1, these two sources of testimony, the one confirms the other. And that's what Paul's saying here in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 16. When you've trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, and you believe in your heart that you're saved, that may be your opinion, your perception, but the Holy Spirit comes alongside of that and says that is true because it's Bible-based. It was based on a decision born out of the teaching of God's Word. And I, the Holy Spirit, convicted. And I, the Holy Spirit, regenerated you. So it's true. You're born again. So the Holy Spirit's witness bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Let me close this message by saying to you there's a theory, a so-called theory, that has made the rounds. 
And no, it's not the theory of evolution, though that's a, a deadly theory, because the theory of evolution, as you well know, does away with God, at least in the origin, the creation of the universe. But this theory of which I speak does not do away with God. In fact, it actually connects everybody to God. In fact, it actually brings God into relationship with everybody. It doesn't do away with Him. It brings God into relationship with everybody. In fact, on that basis of bringing everybody to God and God to everybody, it declares that everyone is good and everyone will eventually end up in heaven, God's house. If you watched any of the media and when a public figure died, it was this theory on which they based what they would often say. They would relook, well, he's he's up there watching down over us right now. You know, he's watching how we do the news or he's watching how we, you know, and they gave all these, these ideas about their idea is they believe this theory. This theory in title is called the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. And it's the idea that everybody is good and everybody's going to get to heaven eventually. Everybody's okay. I say to you, it's, it's not only dead wrong, it's spiritually dead. You know, it has absolutely no truth to it whatsoever. And one problem among the many problems that it has is the fact that it leaves out Jesus Christ. And I can tell you this morning, there is absolutely no salvation by leaving Jesus Christ out of the equation. I can tell you, this uh, last three or four weeks, I finished my book on the America's Real Wars and written by Rabbi Lapin. And I told Scott this, that I understand afresh something about uh, who Paul the Apostle was. Because I tell you what, if you read the book, you'll ask yourself, how can this man not be a saved man? This guy's got higher morals than most people in any church. This man has, has an insight to how God operated in the Old Testament. As a Jew, he saw things and explain, explains and expresses things. And I've never seen a man so passionate about God and honoring in him and glorifying him and getting him back in places where he's been kicked out of. And, and I've never seen anybody that had such a perception of the problem it's called of taking God out of everything. And yet he's a Jew. He doesn't believe Jesus Christ number one, even existed. And number two, that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, the Messiah of Israel. He doesn't believe that. He says it in the first page. I am not a Christian. I have no intention of becoming a Christian. I am not, uh, not uh, going to think about it. I'm not interested in it. I'm a Jew, and I'm going to die a Jew. And that's the way it's going to be. I must tell you, there's several times through this thing, I, I, th I think this guy must be my brother. He could not possibly have this kind of thinking about conservatism and conviction and about God and serving God and loving God and rearing his family to fear God. He's got to be saved. And in a conversation, I think, with Scott, Scott said, but that's the way Paul was. And he's right. There was nobody more zealous than the Saul who became Paul. Nobody. Nobody was as zealous as Saul was. And that's exactly what this book is. Here's a man who writes prolifically and, and wonderfully, and you can't read this thing without getting stirred to go do something about it. But the man's not saved. For one reason. He has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. He shuns him. He doesn't scorn him, but he shuns him. And you cannot shun nor scorn the Lord Jesus Christ and expect to go to heaven. Because of one verse of Scripture, if not for a whole lot, at least one, John 14, Jesus speaking, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh to the Father but by me. You say, well, yeah, but that's talking about coming to, to, to the Father uh, but by, through Christ. Well, I just remind you, the way you ought to study Scripture is contextually. In the context, what did he say he was going to go prepare? I go prepare a place for you. What is that place? We say heaven. So he's talking about the Father is in heaven and you can't get there without coming through me. So nobody's going to get to heaven who does not come through Jesus Christ. Simple. Simple. And as I've come to appreciate this rabbi, and I like the guy. 
my heart goes out to him that he's not going to get to go to heaven, though he, he seems to love God. He seems to trust God. He, he seems to exalt God in everything that he talks about. Yet he won't accept God's Son. You see the danger in this thing? If I were to walk up to Rabbi Laban and say to him, you're not saved, sir, you're not going to heaven, would you think he'd laugh? Would he laugh? He would probably think I was the funniest clown that ever walked across the stage. That's the depth to how the devil deceives people to think one thing when in reality something else is truth. See, reality to people is what they say it is. That's the new trick of Satan. You say you're religious, you can be religious. You say, I'm saved, who, who can doubt it? Who can, who can challenge that? You can't challenge that. Scripture can challenge that. And the Holy Spirit can challenge that. But who am I to tell you you're not saved? And I shouldn't. I'm not telling you that. If it's a conviction of the Spirit of God saying, I am not saved, you are not saved, then that's between you and God. But there are certain characteristics that everybody has a right to look for. And the Bible discloses them to us and says, here they are. Look for them. By their fruits, ye shall know them. By the way they live, by their actions, their attitude, their behavior, their entertainment, their joys, their sorrow, who they run with, who they shun. All that will tell you about them. And I say to you, my friend, this morning that it's important for you to understand that there is absolutely no truth to this theory of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. The fact of the matter is that Jesus Christ is not waiting for you to come to him. He came to this earth to seek you. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And that means the only thing I have to do or you have to do in order for him to be my Savior and God to be my Father and heaven to be my home and God's family to be my family is I have to put myself in a position to say, I'm lost. Because that's who he came to save. He didn't come to save righteous religious people. He came to save sinners. He came to save lost people. He came to save people out of Satan's family. And if you need to be saved this morning, what you must do is say, I'm a candidate. I'm lost. And I need Christ. When you put yourself in that position, you're a qualified candidate. If you want salvation in Jesus Christ, he'll give it. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. No if, no ands, and no buts about it. May God drive the truth of his word to the depths of your soul. Our Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for Romans 8 and thank you for the truth that is shared here and given here. And Father, this morning I pray that you may take your word and drive it deep into our hearts. And I pray that you'll make us exceedingly uncomfortable with any of the things that the devil has simply whispered in our ears. And I pray fervently this morning as I have this week. And if there be people here in the New Life Baptist Church who are not indeed saved by the grace of God, though they think they are, though they hope they are, I pray, Father, please bring conviction of heart and help them to see that the devil is a deceiver. And he delights in getting religious people so blinded to reality of truth that they would live their whole life deceived about salvation and die and spend eternity in a devil's hell. I pray this morning, remove the blinders, erase the darkness, and raise these friends up to a new life in Jesus Christ. And I pray that if there are any here who just have questions about their relationship to you, that they'll seek you, seek your face about these matters. And as others of us can help, help us to do so. But help us not to just depend and base our conviction of our salvation upon a decision made years ago to which there's been no fruit of change. Remind us that if any man, woman, boy, or girl be in Christ, they're a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We're different. We have a new father. We have a new family. And if our lives are to be reflected of that, we must come out from among the sinners of this world, the pagans of this world, and we must be different, distinct, and we must be a light in darkness. I pray this morning you'll reveal to us our true standing, not from what we say, but from what you know. And help us this morning to deal with this truth accordingly. 
I pray let none of the New Life Baptist Church membership be tricked, deceived, or in any way taken advantage of by the evil one to continue to lead in darkness when indeed they the thinking, perceiving that they are born again. May the light shine into every heart. Please reveal to each of us where we are in regard to our standing before thee. And any who are here this morning for a first or second time or third time or whatever folks may have re revisited us, and we're grateful for their coming. If any of these friends need to know Christ, if they've never believed on Christ as their Savior, I pray this morning allow us the privilege of helping them to make decisions that a great number of people in this room have already made, that they may believe on Christ and be saved. Father, for those who ought to come for baptism, for church membership, for prayer, whatever the need is, Help us not to become complacent. Help us not to be satisfied with the status quo. And help us, I pray, raise the bar, the standard, and the quality of our Christian faith. And may the disciplines of our walk with thee be such that 